towards the defense space program. Of course, these sanctions damage, I think, even harder than the civil uh, space sector because to, to get access to some sensitive electronics that you need for military satellites is much more harder. That's the problem. As I can see, Russia inevitably will need to rely on civil satellites, on commercial satellites. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello again, Downlink listeners. The U.S. has told its allies and partners that it believes Russia could invade Ukraine as early as this week. All the attempts to dissuade the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, from invading, the phone calls, the visits from foreign leaders and top diplomats, the threats of even more crippling sanctions, all of it's got to make you wonder what, short of gutting the NATO charter and barring Ukraine from ever joining the alliance, which by all accounts is well over the horizon, what will stop this attempt to use military force to redraw the map of the European political security order? Some have said sanctions and a slate of even more have not and will not make a difference. But they haven't looked at how sanctions have affected what is one of Russia's clearest exemplifications of its status as a global power its space programs. I reached out to two experts, one in Colorado and the other in Russia. From St. Petersburg, we have Pavel Luzin. He's a Russian space and international security expert and lecturer associated with the Jamestown Foundation and the online journal Riddle, which receives support from the Kennan Institute. But first, we'll hear from retired Air Force Brigadier General Bruce McClintock. He leads the RAND Corporation's Space Enterprise Initiative. Before his last posting at what was formerly the Air Force Space Command, he was the U.S. Defense Attaché to Russia. Hi, Bruce. Thank you for making the time to come on the downlink. Hey, thank you, Laura. It's a pleasure to be with you. Before we get started, I'd love for my audience to get to know you. You have a long career in space and in Russia that has carried over into your work with the RAND Corporation. You're not just a retired general, but an astronautical engineer as well. Give us a taste of your fascinating background and what you're working on now. Yeah, definitely, Laura. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to have a very diverse, and I've found it interesting and exciting career. Uh, over the years. And, and I started out, I grew up in Colorado. I attended the Air Force Academy. And as you said, I got a degree in astronautical engineering. I spent uh, the majority of my Air Force career doing air operations. I was a pilot, primarily an A-10 pilot, a test pilot, and a few other things. But all along the way, I continued to nurture my passion for all things space. Uh, I did a few space assignments where we did some space doctrine and policy development at the Space Warfare Center and uh, participated in a variety of different uh, future space war games uh, along the way. And then at one point in my career, I took uh, what I refer to as my crazy Ivan. Uh, I was selected to be the defense attache to Moscow uh, in Russia. And so I spent two years there from 2014 to 2016. Uh, came back from that tour and it was time to transition out of the military. I did one more assignment at Air Force Space Command and then came to the RAND Corporation, where I've been since late 2016 and uh, have really enjoyed the very diverse work 
that Rand does. It, it, it's very focused and it, it aligns well with my personality on very high quality independent research in a variety of areas. And those have included for me uh, space, Russia, uh, just doctrine policy issues across all of the military forces. And it, it's just been a really fascinating uh, journey. Because you served two years as U.S. defense attache to the Russian Federation, you have had a view that's likely as close to a front row seat to observing Russia's armed forces as any American is ever going to get, and in particular, that nation's space capabilities. I'd like to go behind the curtain, if you will, past the rhetoric that's regularly served up here to get a foundational understanding of just what are Russia's ambitions for its security space capabilities and its space forces. Could you explain that? Yeah, very, very uh, important topic to discuss. Uh, and I, I think you asked about a focus on security space capabilities, but I think it's helpful to think of space for any nation in three functional areas so that people can relate to it. And I'll briefly touch on each of those if that's all right. There's civil, commercial, and then, as you said, national security. So in the civil realm for space, Russia has a noteworthy history of civil space activity. And by this, we mean like keeping space flights, space exploration, even like space situation awareness, just tracking what is uh, in space. Roscosmos is the name of the space uh, organization in Russia that is a longtime partner of NASA. And Russia continues to value the prestige associated with civil space activity. And this explains in part for example, their continued cooperation with the United States on the International Space Station, even though there are disagreements uh, on other strategic issues. Uh, it's important to note that now Russia is publicly talking about similar civil space activity agreements uh, with China, such as uh, discussions about establishing a moon research base. Right, let's, let's shift to commercial space. Uh, Russia understands the value of commercial uh, space but this is an area that's never really uh, taken off in Russia, to excuse the pun, if you will. Uh, I, I spelled these reasons out in detail in a paper back in 2017, that, and they're still valid. It is important to note, I think, that it's not that long ago that there was a U.S. dependence on Russia for space launches for a fee, if you will. And that's an indication of how recently Russia had uh, significant launch capability. But their commercial approach to space is very transactional, and it's been decreasing over the last several years. I can maybe later, if you have more questions, cover some of the specific numbers and how it's declined. Uh, but let's shift our focus now to national security space capabilities, uh, since you raised that. In general, Russia, Russian national security space has two main purposes. They recognize that space is important to modern warfare. And so they have developed their own capabilities to conduct warfare uh, in the terrestrial domain. So Russia has their own early warning, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, precision navigation timing, and SATCOM capabilities. A much smaller capability uh, footprint than, say, the United States, but they still have it. And, and they use it in combat operations and training. The other part that's important is the idea of Russia's, and, and in fact, China's too, acknowledgement that the United States is heavily dependent on space. And as a result, both Russia and China have begun again, in the case of Russia, developing counter space capabilities, things that they can use to attack their adversaries' dependence on space. Now, with that understanding, let's 
tackle the competing narratives of Russia's weird unregistered inspector satellites, such as the nesting doll satellite and the eavesdropping Olymp-K on the one hand, and then on the other, the string of failures and setbacks. I mean, can you tell us about what those setbacks have been? Wasn't there a rocket failure as recently as December? Yeah, certainly. So I'll unpack that kind of in the order that you gave it. So first of all, let's talk about the setbacks, I guess reverse order. Let's talk about the setbacks, and then let's talk a little bit about some of the emerging capabilities. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, Russia has a declining launch record. You know, there was a time when the Soviet Union was the peak launch entity during the Cold War. They There was a time at one point where they were launching over 100 rockets a year. Uh, and since 1957, Russia has launched over 3,000 uh, space missions. That was roughly twice as many as the United States until recently. But if you look at 2016, Russia had just 18 successful launches compared to China's 19 and America's 20. That was the first time that Russia had ever trailed China in annual space launches. More recently, in 2021, there were about 145 launches, 55 were from China, 51 from the United States, and only 25 for Russia. So Russia has fallen to a distant third in space launch capability. And there's a variety of reasons for this. I'll name just a few if that's okay and briefly touch on them. So there's been a bit of a brain drain and brain aging phenomenon in Russia in their civil space field. Obviously, they were launching a lot of rockets in the Cold War. Uh, The specialist population that conducts that kind of work is aging and their competence is waning as well because that part of the space ecosystem has become less attractive. They're reportedly paid low wages and say that they can't travel outside of Russia because of the positions that they're in. And that's a big disincentive for young Russians that uh, are used to travel. There's a big corruption component in the Russian economy, and that has eaten away at the health of the the civil space program. They also are suffering from reduced budgets uh, since the 1990s, which was probably the worst time post-Soviet era. Uh, And now it's flat. And there's been some other factors that have come into play too, and sanctions as well, which we can talk about later if you want. So they have had problems in the civil space arena primarily. But as I I mentioned earlier, it's important to distinguish between civil space and in this case, for our discussion, national security space. Russia has begun again to develop uh, counter space systems. Now, this isn't the first time, admittedly, that this kind of activity has happened. In fact, we, we should acknowledge that In 1959, the United States conducted their first anti-satellite weapon test. And then there was another U.S. test uh, that's a little bit more famous from 1985, where the United States launched a a missile to destroy a satellite off of an F-15 fighter aircraft. Now, those tests uh, for the United States and Russia, they they went uh, dormant at the end of the Cold War, but the Russians have been growing more active since then. And some of the systems you talk about are the ones that uh, most people refer to. Going back to June 2017, they launched Cosmos 2519, uh, which was one of the first in a series, uh, in a several series of tests of the nesting doll satellites. And for your listeners that aren't tracking this as closely, uh, that's the trade name, if you will, for these satellites where they launch a host satellite. And then that host satellite dispenses an additional satellite when it's on orbit. And in some cases, these Russian satellites, these Cosmos series, have been putting out a second satellite, which is assessed to be a 
a test target, and then there's some kind of a projectile coming from the host satellite. So it, it appears that they're testing an on-orbit space weapon. That's just one type of uh, counter space capability that they're testing. And I'll stop there in case you have questions about others. I don't want to be unfair to Russia and its hard-earned space heritage. I mean, in space development, there are explosions, there are setbacks, but the available reporting seems to indicate that Russia has had more than its fair share of setbacks. So that's led me to wonder, how do Russian forces use their space assets? And can they depend on their space-based infrastructure? Some of it's aging, like GLONASS, the Global Positioning Constellation of Satellites. And yet there is reporting that land forces did use space assets for operations in Syria. Can they have confidence in what they have? I would say the short answer to the question is, can Russia have confidence in the systems that they have? Yes, for the submissions and at the scale that they conduct them. Uh, So let me explain that qualifier, if you will, to see the nuance in Russia's space capabilities. I mentioned some of the launch uh, statistics earlier, uh, but again, to put it in perspective, Russia is third in the world right now behind the United States and China in terms of operational satellites. They have roughly 140 or more satellites in various orbits right now. And, And you mentioned GLONASS. Let's talk about GLONASS just a little bit. So they're equivalent of our GPS system. It's been around uh, since uh, the late Cold War era. It deteriorated significantly in the 1990s because of all the reasons that I said, mostly just the lack of budget to launch uh, replacement satellites and maintain the system. But in the 2000s, Russia committed to reconstituting GLONASS, and it regained full operating capability in 2011, I believe. So now they're maintaining that system at full uh, capability, and they're able to replace inoperative satellites as needed. And and they're doing the same thing that the U.S. has done already. They're launching next-on-ass satellites that are supposed to deliver higher accuracy. So for things like precision navigation and timing, they have their own system, and it's reliable. They have reconstituted it, rebuilt it back to a healthy state. Similar circumstances for SATCOM and ISR, Uh, you mentioned uh, Syria. Uh, They have publicly talked about how they use their ISR capability in Syria, but I mentioned the scale and for the type of mission. They dedicated 10% of their existing ISR and SATCOM capability to Syrian operations, which was a very limited operation in the scheme of things. So they don't have the the global capability to operations uh, that the United States has at scale but they do have enough capability to conduct the kind of operations that they're more likely to conduct. You've seen the rollout of sanctions regimes since the first iteration of the 2012 Magnitsky Act. Some have argued that sanctions don't really do more than, well, scratch the body paint, but that's not necessarily true for Russia's space programs, um, possibly even including its defense assets. Could you kind of explain what's the state of play there? I can certainly give you kind of a general sense of that without getting into too many specifics, of course. Uh, But one thing we can say very clearly is that before 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea, the Russian space enterprise regularly purchased very high quality Western components for their satellites. Uh, And what they did through that, and they acknowledge this, they've talked about this publicly now, is they created a dependency relationship. So they became dependent on these Western high quality components. And uh, the 2014 sanctions did immediate impact. 
Uh, Putin talked about it publicly and uh, others have reported on it. And, and Russia has said, we are going to establish our own ability to produce the goods that we need to achieve our national objectives is the rough terminology that they would use. Now, to say anything more about this in detail, I wouldn't be able to do, but I can say in a general sense, you know, I like to talk about using the uh, analogy of the patient's symptoms to have a better sense of what their condition might be. So we did, we did talk about some of the symptoms of their, their current fleet, but we they do need to look elsewhere. They've talked about it publicly to find those components. So we know that there's a need there. We know they're hungry. It's not as clear how well they've been able to satisfy that hunger. I think it's worth mentioning that there is public discussion and probably more behind the scenes between Russia and China to establish their own capabilities in these areas. So back to the sanctions questions, do they matter? Are they effective? Uh, they, they have been effective enough to cause Russia to publicly talk about a desire to be independent, uh, high quality Western components. And have sanctions, you know, not just the electronics, but also financially, I mean, has that had an effect on the actual force that is flying uh, the uh, defense space base capabilities, or is it, you know, steady? Uh, even in, during my time in, in Moscow, we, th- that was the early days of, of sanctions, of the sanctions regime, and there was a very high level of interest in how effective overall sanctions were. And in the general comment I would make about this, and then I'll make some specific comments about the Russian Aerospace Forces, is that sanctions overall have a a relatively small percentage of impact on the Russian economy writ large. What has a larger impact on the Russian economy is the price of oil, frankly. And so I can't give you an exact percentage just because I don't have that and I don't want to misquote the values. But it's, let's put it in the range of less than 10% of the overall impact on the Russian economy is due to sanctions over the years. Whereas the price of oil, when it fluctuates significantly, like anywhere from, say, at times it was up at $90 a barrel, that was really helpful to the Russian economy. The Russian budget is tied to, is based off assumptions about the price of oil. That's how significant the price of oil is. So the, there is an impact overall of sanctions on the Russian military, but it is slight. Now, when it comes to the aerospace forces, uh, the Russian aerospace forces, and that's, you know, like China, they have reorganized. And, you know, the United States has done this too. There's been a growing emphasis on creating a a portion of their services that is focused on space. And as you know, Laura, in the United States, there's been the reestablishment of the United States Space Command, which is the combatant command for space, and the creation of a separate service called the Space Force, which is the U.S. military organization that is dedicated to organizing, training, and equipping for space missions. In Russia, they took a slightly different approach, and other nations have taken this approach too. They have an aerospace force, so it's a combined air and space force, but they have subcomponents that are focused strictly on space. And I would say, in contrast to the discussion we had about the declining civil capability within Russia, the aerospace force that is well-funded and uh, the people that they attract are talented and motivated to accomplish the mission that they're doing. We know that Russia is now more than ready to invade and occupy more or all of Ukraine. And again, there is talk of sanctions. What would additional sanctions likely mean for Russia's space programs and then more especially the space forces, if anything, for them? So it's it's hard for me to say because I'm not privy to what the discussions are in the West about additional sanctions. 
there, there are some pretty extreme things that the United States and the West could do, like cutting Russia out of what's called the SWIFT system, which is a financial system that allows uh, Russian banks to conduct trades in the international financial system. That, that would be a, a very, very significant act. And it's one that's been discussed in the past, and it would have a significant impact on the overall Russian economy to a level that I can't fully assess. It's not uh, my personal area of expertise, but that would be a very, very significant act. And that something like that would have an impact on the Russian military and on the uh, Russian economy writ large. Uh, lesser sanctions, it's really hard to say what more could be done that would, would further target the Russian military in, in ways that I've talked about earlier. So it's not clear that we can be that precise. Uh, we don't have that precision scalpel uh, to use to affect just specific uh, entities within uh, Russia. And, and odds are, if, if they're willing to go to war, uh, that they're going to prioritize the military, even if there is increased pressure on their economy. Bruce, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Laura. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. For a different view from Russia with Pavel Luzin, what he has to say about sanctions and Russia's space program might just surprise you. Hello, Pavel. Thank you for joining me on the downlink. Hello, Laura. Thanks for invitation. Pavel, you are a prolific writer on Russia, international relations, defense issues, and Russia's space programs. Please tell our audience where they can find your work and what you are working on now. So in English, you may read my papers on the website of the Jamestown Foundation, the Foreign Policy Research Institute. It's a Philadelphian think tank. And on the website of the Riddle Project. It's online think tank based in Lithuania, but this think tank uh, published uh, the papers as in English as in Russian languages. So uh, you may read my papers there. And currently uh, I'm working on a spectrum of issues. Uh, first of all, it's Russian defense policy, uh, Russian space policy, and Russian uh, relations with the United States and with NATO on the arms control issues and all this security agenda uh, that is actual right now. When I contacted you for this interview to talk about U.S. sanctions and the Russian space sector, you generously agreed to describe what seems so very opaque, which is the industrial base of Russia's space programs. And as you know, my audience is most interested in national security space. So I would think it would be most helpful to understand whether the space industry can really be separated into civil space programs and military space programs, at least in terms of the industrial base, because here in the United States, the major satellite manufacturers and launch providers provide services to the civil defense and commercial sectors. How is it done in Russia? So in Russia, it is done almost in the same way like in the United States. I mean that the defense sector and civil sector are not separated. But uh, the difference is that in the United States, uh, there are private companies uh, that work on space programs, uh, on defense programs, civil, military, and so on and so on. But in Russia, there is only one huge corporation, Roscosmos, 
and uh, this corporation is state-owned. So it is a state-owned corporation uh, that is responsible for civil space program, for military space program, and for manufacturing of intercontinental ballistic missiles and uh, sea launch uh, ballistic missiles and all this uh, strategic arms stuff. Uh, also, the space industry of Russia involves uh, some divisions of other state-owned defense corporations, like, for instance, uh, Tactical Missile Corps. It is also involved in some ways into the uh, space programs. Uh, but the main actor is uh, Roscosmos. And also, in distinction from the United States, Currently, there is no space agency in Russia because Roscosmos plays the role as a manufacturer of all space uh, crafts, all satellites, of launch vehicles, and so on and so on. But also, Roscosmos plays a role of uh, space agency. Previously, before 2015, yes, there was a federal space agency in Russia and uh, some state-owned uh, industrial companies. But uh, after that, all of them were combined into this huge uh, corporation uh, like Roscosmos. So just to be clear, when Roscosmos has a requirement to produce a rocket or a satellite for the Russian military, is that satellite or, or that rocket, is that manufactured in the same place under the same factory or organization that it would use for civil space activities? Yes. Uh, yes, for, for example, uh, there is a, a satellite uh, f- factory uh, in Krasnoyarsk. It's near Krasnoyarsk called uh, Reshetnyov Company. This factory produces civil satellites, commercial satellites, as military satellites. For, for example, for BLONASS uh, satellite navigation uh, system, it is a counterpart of GPS. Uh, however, there are some minor factories in Russia that work mostly on defense space program and they don't produce the civil satellites or commercial satellites, but uh, nevertheless, they involved in civil space programs because they produce some equipment for uh, civil uh, satellites and so on and so on. So when we read the reports of the criminal indictments, the brain drain or that a Russian state newspaper published an article deeply critical of uh, Dmitry Rogozin and the Russian space agency or the Russian you know, organization, space organization, Roscosmos, and its leadership titled The Space Program is Rotting from Within. Does that include the security space sector What's its true health? What's really going on? Um, mostly the critics, uh, criticism of uh, Dmitry Ragozin is related with the um, civil space program. I mean, new managed spacecraft called Oreol, Eagle in English, uh, previously known uh, as Federatsia project. Uh, Federatsia, it's a Russian word, federation. This project continues for many, many years without uh, any significant success yet. But, you know, the Roscosmos Corporation is not, is not outside of uh, the Russian political system. Roscosmos is a part of the Russian political system with a lot of bureaucracy, with a lot of institutions. And Rogozin plays within 
this system of bureaucratic contradictions, bureaucratic competition within this so-called uh, administrative market or bureaucratic market. And of course, there are some opponents of Rogozin uh, within the uh, Russian political system, especially within the presidential executive office. But at the same time, Rogozin, uh, he is not a specialist in space industry at all. He previously worked as journalist, as a politician, as a diplomat, but he plays a significant role within the system. Because when he became a head of Roscosmos, uh, Roscosmos faced a lot of financial troubles and industrial troubles, a lot of emergency situations during the launches, a lot of emergency situations with satellites, and so on and so on. And Rogozin was put on the top of Roscosmos to deal with the most crucial challenges to deal with bad financial situation of uh, Roscosmos factories and so on and so on. And he did some improvements there. Of course, um, I don't know, he couldn't create a miracle. He couldn't do, I don't know, uh, he couldn't compete with uh, Elon Musk, for instance, or with Boeing or with Lockheed Martin, um, with American space industry at all. But he tried to solve the most crucial issues as in space programs, as in strategic arms manufacturing, I mean missiles. The problem is not Ragozin himself. The problem is uh, how the whole Russian political economy system works. It's not very efficient. It's not uh, very profitable. It, it faces a lax as in technologies, as in human capital, uh, as in financial sources, it, when, okay. when we're talking about, you know, some of the issues here that the space program is facing, uh, that Rogozin is facing, is that affecting the security space sector? I mean, what is the national security space sector's true health? When we speak about the Russian military uh, space program or defense space program, firstly, we should see on the Russian satellite constellation on orbit. And if we see on the numbers, uh, we will find that there are 160 to 170 satellites that be belong to the Russian Federation on orbit. And more than 100 of them are military. And uh, some of them belong to Gazprom Corporation. Some of them belong to other state-owned uh, companies. But the huge part, the biggest part of them are military. And this uh, military defense constellation uh, consists of several major parts. The first part is communication satellites. The second part is intelligence, reconnaissance satellites. And the third part is uh, navigation satellites, GLONASS system. And it's hard to analyze the situation with military communications or with uh, military intelligence reconnaissance because you know it's top secret issues we may only say that russia tried in previous years in previous decade tried to fulfill the gap in communications and currently russia is trying to fulfill the gap uh, in intelligence, electronic intelligence, uh, radar Im imaging, optical intelligence, uh, some reconnaissance, and so on and so on. This trend uh, we may see. But towards GLONASS system, the situation is much more transparent. And what can we see if we look at GLONASS system? 
we may see that the main challenge, the main problem for Russia is to transition from previous generation of uh, navigation satellites to the modern generation of, of the navigation satellites, uh, from GLONASS-M uh, generation to GLONASS-K generation. And the problem is that the first satellite of GLONASS-K generation was launched in 2011. The second one was launched in 2014. And the third one uh, has been launched in 2020. But according to the original plan, in 2020, Russia should have nine GLONASS-K satellites. But currently, Russia has only two of them because the first one died last year in 2000, uh, 2021. Uh, so that means there is a significant problem with a crucial part of the Russian defense space program, I mean uh, satellite navigation. And Russia still incapable to make this transition from previous generation to the new generation of satellites. And also Russia stopped to produce the previous generation of satellite. And Russia still is incapable to uh, organize manufacturing of the new generation of satellites. That's, that's the problem. And currently, as I know, as I can see in, in the open sources documents in some in, in industrial magazines, uh, that the Russian space industry is working on so-called Plan B. Plan B means that Russia may change the structure of GLONASS system. So there is a problem. Uh, and if we extrapolate the problems with GLONASS into the communication and uh, reconnaissance uh, slash intelligence satellites, we may say that the quantity of the Russian defense satellite constellation, more than 100 satellites, means that the quality of these satellites is not so good. And Russia needs to launch again and again just because the lifetime of these satellites is relatively short, from five to seven years. We may compare this with American satellites that have a lifetime from 10 to 15 years. Some, some of them can serve uh, up to 20 years. So in this way, Russia is still incapable to solve all these issues. And uh, uh, in my opinion, Rogozin does not have a guilty on this because uh, it's a structural uh, issue, a structural challenge. It's a systemic challenge for Russia. Here in the West, those voices that support sanctions have pointed to the space sector as an example of where sanctions have worked. Even Dmitry Rogozin threatened to pull Russia out of the International Space Station over sanctions. I do, however, need to remind the audience that Rogozin is personally sanctioned. So have sanctions actually affected the space industrial base so far? And if so, how? The Western sanctions damage the Russian space industry hard. There are two main areas of this damage. The first area is industrial equipment. Because uh, before you get a satellite or launch vehicle or something else, you need an industrial equipment. And uh, you need somebody who can use this industrial equipment and to produce the satellite or the launch vehicle or rocket engine or something like that. And currently, 
Russia does not have a legal access to this industrial equipment. Nevertheless, some of the Russian companies, they produce the industrial equipment by themselves, but from the components that are produced in Europe, and some of them are produced in the United States. So Russia is trying to manage the situation, but the sanctions damage this area hard, nevertheless. The second area is uh, space electronics. And according to the official estimations made in 2017, maybe uh, 2016, these estimations were pretty optimistic. But according to these estimations, Russia will never be able to produce 7% of minimum requirements of space electronics. Currently, we may say that Russia is not able to produce more than 7% of minimum requirements. That means Russia needs to import this space electronics from abroad. And uh, of course, Russia uses some espionage network. Uh, Russia used some alternatives like import from Malaysia, from Taiwan, not from People's Republic of China, but from Taiwan. But nevertheless, it all increases the cost of manufacturing day by day, year by year. And that means the Western sanctions work, of course. Of course, uh, they work. Uh, for example, if we talk only about civil program, the new Russian orbital model called NEM, it's a scientific and energy model that is still under development. This project previously relied on the European and American-made electronics. Currently, it is not clear if Russia will be able to realize this project without the access to the European and American-made space electronics. Towards the defense space program, of course, these sanctions damage, I think, even harder than the civil uh, space sector. Because to, to get access to some sensitive electronics that you need for military satellites is much more harder. That's the problem. As I can see, Russia inevitably will need to rely on civil satellites, on commercial satellites, for instance, in communications or maybe optical imaging, because it's impossible to get all the necessary electronics uh, legally or even illegally. Uh, and uh, currently, for, for example, there is a company that belongs to Gazprom. It's a Russian gas monopoly uh, that also involved in some oil uh, manufacturing. The company Gazprom Space Systems. And this company is not under sanctions, but this company currently is constructing the satellite assembly plant uh, near Moscow. And uh, as I can see, they will try to import some electronics, some civil grade electronics, and to create some uh, commercial civil satellites from these components. After that, they will try to create a kind of commercial civil constellation of satellites and uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense will be able to use this constellation for its own purpose as well. Not only commercial clients or governmental consumers, but also military consumers will get an access to these constellations because uh, there, is no, uh, there is no choice. So if Russia invades Ukraine, though, we know that multiple layers of new sanctions regimes will spring up like mushrooms after a summer rain. 
I mean, what could that mean for Russia's space programs, even for the Gazprom uh, factory? And more specifically, you know, would that also affect the security space programs? I can't imagine then, then it wouldn't. Of course, in case of further escalation, not only in Ukraine, for, for instance, I don't know, in case of some incidents uh, between Russia troops and NATO troops, the new sanctions, any type of new sanctions, will be a disaster to Russian space industry, to the Russian space programs, both civil, military, uh, for some commercial initiatives in space. And we should know that the post-Soviet Russia never realized its civil space program without the assistance of the United States and Europe, without the cooperation, because the International Space Station project appeared in 1992, uh, soon after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was able to realize the space program, the old type of uh, space activity by itself. Russia is not able to do this. Moreover, the space cooperation, the space partnership with the West is one of three main pillars that creates great power status in this world. And without this pillar, in case of, I don't know, collapse of this partnership, Russia will face a risk of losing the status of great power. And taking into account that Russia is relatively weak in economics, that Russia is relatively weak in science and technologies, that Russia is relatively weak in human capital, that Russia is relatively weak in, in the stuff that, that is called as soft power. It's a cultural attractiveness, political attractiveness, and so on and so on. So without the space partnership with the West, Russia will lose the great power status at all. And uh, that's why um, in case of new sanctions, Russia will not be able to realize even its defense space program in a proper way, or at least in, in a minimum acceptable way. So I hope that Russia, that the Russian leadership will have enough of brains <laughs> to avoid the further escalation, as in Ukraine, as in confrontation with the West at all. Pavel, thank you yeah. so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for the invitation. It, it was my pleasure. Yes, there is more to this story, such as the implications of the closer ties between Russia and China that I hope to cover soon. But that's it for this week. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe and share with your friends. The downlink is available on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. <laughs>